Planetary Radio Live in London. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I'm just back from the United Kingdom where, in addition to walking about 30 miles, I witnessed the recording of the Moon Symphony by world-renowned conductor Marin Alsop and the London Symphony Orchestra. What you're about to hear happened just a day later. It's a tiny portion of our Planetary Radio Live celebration of this composition and the melding of art and science it represents. I hope it'll make you want to hear the complete show, which you can do at planetary.org radio and from all the best podcast sources. It also includes my backstage conversation with Marin Alsop and the composer of the Moon Symphony, Amanda Lee Falkenberg. We'll forego our usual recap of headlines from the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, but it's worth a look. You'll find the latest issue at planetary.org downlink. It's Monday, May 23rd. A big crowd has come to the campus of our host, Imperial College London, to hear excerpts from the symphony and a conversation with Amanda. Joining us on stage that evening were three of our planet's greatest solar system explorers. Old friend Linda Spilker is the Cassini Mission Project Scientist and Deputy Project Scientist for Voyager. Jet Propulsion Lab volcanologist Ashley Davis is on the Europa Clipper science team, as is Imperial's own Mark Sefton, an astrobiologist. Here's that small sample of our great evening. It includes a selection from the seventh movement of the Moon Symphony, the one inspired by our world's own moon. I should say that if you go to the Moon Symphony website, you can hear all seven of these synthesized versions of the movements. But when that recording comes out and, fingers crossed, when it appears across the street at the Royal Albert Hall being performed by the LSO or some other equally wonderful ensemble, well, I hope I can be there. Let's go on to the last moon, the seventh movement in the Moon Symphony. Do you recognize it? Who knows? Yell it out. Now no scientists allowed. Yes. The moon. That's our moon. That's right. This is the far side, not the dark side. Correct people if they say that. It's the far side of the moon, now being revealed to us, well, in part by the Chinese, but uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, American Orbiter, and many other spacecraft that are headed there if they're not already there. Amanda, introduce us to this climactic seventh movement because we're ready to hear it. Yeah. You know, it tells a very simple story. It starts with a boy solo, which I would like to expand on a little later, which is the first time in the symphony that introduces the sound of a solo boy's voice, which does two things. It represents the fragility of Earth and also the children of our future. Um, but soon the boy's solo is joined by full choir to represent that the children of this Earth are not alone in these planetary plights and as a united species together we'll solve the problems and together. So this synopsis is what is really the basis of this seventh moon. And I do want to share something really beautiful that has happened, again, very serendipitously. Um, the LSO's principal bassoonist happened to be the father of the young boy solo, who is here tonight. 
and Leo Jemison will be our, our boy soloist for this seventh movement. His father is playing, has played, I can say in past tense, um, the bassoon part. And I think what just blew my mind when I heard this is that just before the boy solo, I don't know if the except's going to do this tonight, but just before the boy solo begins, there's this delicate little bassoon solo that sort of segues into the solo for the boy's voice. And of course, it's his father playing that bassoon and he's about to sing the solo on stage. And he's here tonight, our um, Leo Jemison. Leo, please, please take a bow. Now, what we're about to hear, this is not Leo, right? No. But uh, yeah. I, recording tomorrow or? Uh? No, well, next uh, Saturday, the ah. 4th of June, and Joshua Abrams was our original um, vo uh, vocalist. We will be having the, um, the full session with a 60 voice choir. So there's a beautiful backstory just there, and finally we're united and hold again. So um, that's pretty much the story of the seventh movement. <gasps>
I don't know about the rest of you who were there yesterday uh, at St. Luke's. I was in tears and got goosebumps again today and felt it. Um, it's overpowering, uh, simply beautiful. And I, I, I just, I have to say it again. You must hear it as performed by the London Symphony Orchestra as soon as uh, it becomes available. Were you as thrilled as the rest of us? Oh, look, it was, it was the moment, um, obviously, I was quite critical with the score and following all the detail, but um, Marin Alsop gave us quite a longer take with this moon and obviously we're working in little sections. There's a lot of material to get through and this moon is a little bit easier musically to pull off. Um, the story's a little bit more simple and it's much more lyrical. And there was a point where she just allowed the London Symphony Orchestra to play their hearts out. And we had probably four, of, four minutes to the end where they just soared on their instruments. And there was, I was told there was not a dry eye in the house. And I got quite emotional on stage with Nicole and, and, um, other, and yourself. And, mm -hmm. and I just, I, I wrote something on social media today. And the, my comment was, they played as though they were on that surface of Earth Moon, beaming that experience through musical vibration from their glorious gifts as artists back here on planet Earth. And I never thought that I would have that analogy, but that's what they gifted us yesterday. And I think that was just a, such a powerful moment. So I was blown away. It was an absolutely stunning end to the sequence of movements. Right, and for uh, me, Matt, almost I could yeah. picture the Earth there like they would, yeah. it's this small, complete planet, mm. as Nicole would say, and the sense of longing to take care of this planet. Very powerful. Mark, you were there. Very impactful, emotionally. I, I felt like I'd been beaten up with an emotional baseball bat by the end of it. <laughs> um, but goosebumps upon goosebumps, to see the orchestra, one big human machine producing uh, something so coordinated and harmonious and wonderful, it's very, very emotional. It was overpowering for me. I found it quite, quite I think dramatic. It's a good term. Taking us back to the theme of the evening, which is this intersection of art and science, which I hope you agree we have beautifully illustrated this evening. The line I came up with was, here it is, that great science inspires great art. Great art can be the highest expression of scientific wonder. Am I off base, Amanda, or does that sound right to you? I think, you know, being a film composer and knowing the power of music to tell stories, to the, the persuasive language of music to manipulate emotions, that is when I saw these moons and I instantly thought they need music, they need emotion. It's only when I started investigating them that I came across all this incredible science and that's when I thought, wow, there is an opportunity that cannot be missed here. And that's when I thought, well, what about if I employ the forces of a choir to sing the science? It's going to give it so much more outreach and meaning and, and um, we'll be able to communicate more of its story. I'm a teacher at heart, so I'm always wanting, I'm, so, I'm very curious about life and learning. And I just thought that here's an opportunity to team science up with stories, with space, but with the universal language of music, which communicates to all of us. And space is for all of us as well. And science should also be that. And funny enough, Marin Olsot, music should be it for everyone. So it's just a really beautiful global collaborative spirit that just engages all these worlds that overlap. And to me, that is the essence of this experience. That's the Moon Symphony. I have mentioned this before. I'm a big fan of Walt Whitman. I love Leaves of Grass. He wrote a poem in there called The Learned Astronomer. He was dead wrong. 
He basically is saying, oh, these astronomers, they're all about the numbers and analyzing and this, and they don't feel the romance, and Walt goes out, and he looks up at the moon and the sky, and he feels it. Well, he was wrong, right, Linda? Absolutely. Definitely the, the feeling coming through. Enceladus, of course, is one of my favorite movements, but actually being able to feel like I was there watching those rows and rows and rows of jets going off on Enceladus at those plumes. I appreciate the effort that Manda took to get into the science uh, of Io, but regarding the intersection or the, the, the complementarity of art and science, I was drawn to a quote from the artist Francois Gillot, who spent 10 years living with Pablo Picasso and then married Jonas Salk, who created the, the polio vaccine. And she was asked, what is it like? You two are completely different. And what she said was, even though we are in different fields, we had the same intrinsic drive, the drive to get into an equation with the unknown, to pull something known out of something unknown. And that just struck a chord with me, because I think of the scientist waiting to see that new image coming back from a spacecraft, which, as Mark said, and as Linda said, it changes the paradigm, it changes the book, because hypotheses are disproved and new hypotheses form. I think of the composer with her hands poised above a keyboard, waiting to strike that first chord. Mm. I think it's the same mindset, I think it's the same thing. Well done, Ashley. Beautiful. Uh, Mark. Mark Sefton. I agree. Um, so I, I <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, so I, I was lucky enough to see the, the orchestra yesterday. Um, how, you know, the limits of what's possible musically was stretched, the attention to detail. It was like a research project. I, I think art is science and science is art. Uh, anybody who's a scientific researcher like me, knows that you have to look at things with fresh eyes sometimes. You have to go and seek inspiration, come back, and find new ways forward. That requires a creative mind. We've got more in common than we have than is different. And I think if people could recognize the similar approaches that, that science and art uh, require, uh, they'd see it's just one long continuum of, of activity. Linda? Well, in fact, I was going to add that the Moon Symphony, the project itself, is kind of like a space mission. Hmm. You have to pay attention to that detail and work so hard to finally have it come to fruition, hearing the orchestra play that music. What's next? When are we going to be able to hear what was recorded yesterday and what is still being recorded at Abbey Road? So we have a trajectory, um, which is a digital release in October this year. And I think we're going to be able to do it. And um, once that is available for um, digital download, we are already knitting together a plan for a world premiere. And we're just trying to identify where on planet Earth that's going to take place. I think part of the vision has always been the glorious Royal Albert Hall over there, partly because it looks like a moon. We don't know. And we're just you know, open and fluid and um, flexible about how that will manifest. But right now, I think I'm just really enjoying this phase of it, which is the recording. Having the scientists with me was, is more than dreamy. And of course, the London Symphony Orchestra, the best orchestra on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. You know what a luxury it is just to have us together after everything that we've been through in the last two years. 
And I think more than ever, this symphony is basically the theme of planet Earth the last two years, that we are together, united and whole. What a wonderful place to end. Thank you, Amanda Lee Falkenberg. Thank you, Linda Spilker and Ashley Davis of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, not far from, uh, from uh, our headquarters at the Planetary Society in Pasadena. And Mark Sefton of Imperial College London, thank you to you as well for joining us. Uh, many thanks also to Imperial College London, which has made this possible, this gathering. And again, thank you to all of you who came out here on a rainy night in London. Ad Astra, which means to the stars and to the moons as well. Thank you, everyone, and good night. <laughs> A brief excerpt from our Planetary Radio Live show created at Imperial College London on May 23rd. You can hear much more, including excerpts from three other Moon Symphony movements at planetary.org radio. That's also where much more content awaits you, including my backstage conversation with conductor Marin Alsop and composer Amanda Lee Falkenberg, and an interview with the musician-elected chairman of the London Symphony Orchestra, David Alberman. I'll be right back with Bruce Betts and What's Up. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family. Really any creative activity that's space-related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are back with a, uh, a brand new What's Up Bruce is uh, virtually sitting across from me uh, here in, in this online session. It's good to see you again after a couple of weeks. Good to see you. Welcome back from your trip of fun and work and goodness. Work and pleasure, and even the work was a pleasure. So uh, it was, it was quite, a, quite a couple of weeks. Yeah, you're wild, man. As I told you before we went on the air, just hearing about your trip makes me tired. Yeah, I don't blame you. I'm still definitely jet lagged. So uh, wake me up. Tell me about that beautiful sky. Pre-dawn is just going to be the focus. Uh, the planet party, it just continues. They're wild and crazy. Jupiter and Mars did their close-up thing, but they are still close and they're moving apart. So check out the pre-dawn east. Lowest down is super bright Venus. Well, if you might pick up Mercury even farther to the lower left of Venus, but it'll get higher. Just wait. So mostly start with Venus in the lower uh, left and then move up to the right and you'll see reddish Mars and then very close to it, bright Jupiter and farther up to the right is Saturn. And they're all just going to kind of spread out across the sky over the coming weeks and months. And uh, it's, it's good stuff. 
We move on to This Week in Space History, 1965, First American Spacewalk by Ed White. And uh, 1968, three, three years later, unrelated, except for, you know, head into the moon, Surveyor 1, the first uh, U.S. lunar soft lander, landed. And what a triumph that was when uh, Surveyor 1 made it. The very first attempt by a, by a surveyor to make a, a soft landing uh, up there, especially after Ranger took, uh, oh, I don't know, several tries before they got it right. But it made some nice small craters. Of course, Ranger was a high-speed impact designed to do that anyway. It just was supposed to function before then. Eventually, they got one working, and Surveyor Program was very successful, yeah. as was Lunar Orbiter. Random space fact, a random, random space fact. I'm just not done with that yet. So on Apollo 11, there was a small disk, kind of the size of a big coin, that Buzz Aldrin carried and was dropped onto the moon that contained goodwill messages, statements by Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, and messages of goodwill from leaders of a whole bunch of countries around the world. Uh, Also had leadership of Congress, NASA top management, all sorts of names that were shrunk down and put on there and still hanging out on the moon. Somehow I'd missed that until now. So there you go. We'll come back to that in a little bit. I didn't know that either. Yeah, glad we're coming back to it too. We have a lot of trivia questions to get to. Yeah, uh, the first of these is uh, your answer uh, to the question that we asked way back on May 11. We had to do this because uh, because I went out of town and uh, last week was uh, was pre-taped, but uh, we're ready now. What was that question? Oh, I like this one. We asked you, why is there a depiction of a snake on the Perseverance rover. How'd we do, Matt? Big response to this one. I'll let the Poet Laureate of Planetary Radio, Dave Fairchild of Kansas, uh, provide what what he believes was the answer. Rod of Asclepius, etched on aluminum, traveled to Mars as an honor to those putting their personal health on the line in the fight against COVID when it first arose. There on the lander, the rod and the snake are supporting the Earth, It's a virtual sign thanking the teams of our medical heroes who help us while putting themselves on the line. I had no idea this was also adorned uh, perseverance. I I didn't realize it either, and uh, it's worthy of note since obviously those people deserve our thanks and gratitude, and so it's kind of neat. First-time winner, Peter Edel in Germany. Uh, who uh, said, yeah, it was uh, commemorating the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, paying tribute to the perseverance of healthcare workers. Congratulations, Peter. We're going to send you a copy of Totality, an eclipse guide in rhyme and science. A terrific book by Jeff Bennett, friend of the show that uh, we have already talked about. All right, let's go on to the next one of these. This would be the question that you posed in the uh, May 18 episode. You're having me record these one after another over a short period of time. I was losing it by this point. So I asked you, continuing the animal theme, it turns out, what Messier object could have been named after a movie with Natalie Portman? How'd we do, Matt? I'm so very curious. (laughs) There were some interesting answers to this. A lot of people made reference to her appearance in Thor, the Phantom Galaxy, something like that, or maybe it was her Star Wars stuff. I don't know. We got everything like that. 
But here is the answer I think you were looking for in a poem from Gene Lewin once again, Gene Lewin in Washington. I believe the answer does have wings and dark, but not a bat. No, it's not the wild duck. Leave Allman starred in that. Searching the Messier object list, utilizing WikiP, then a search for Natalie's movie with help from IMDb. I see a lobster. No wings there. Ghostfly, but Casper starred Ricci. In Star Wars 1, playing a queen, it could be the Phantom Galaxy, but focusing on feathered friends, it must be the Black Swan. I wonder, when she was on point, did she have Bill Nye's shoes on? <laughs> wow, he knows, knows Bill Nye trivia. Yeah, our boss, who uh, has somewhat of a reputation as a dancer, uh, even in, uh, in reality television. He also holds a patent for a design of a ballet shoe, I believe. You know, you're right. I forgot about that. He's told me about that. He's, he's quite the inventor. Uh, and I, I do remember he talked about point shoes, which uh, is invention. I wish it had been around when my daughters were learning to go on point. You may remember that I said we would have a surprise prize for this contest. Ooh, ooh, exciting. Harry Rao in Texas said, I hope the surprise prize is a dinner with Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis. Uh, <laughs> dream on no but how about lunch on us and a tour of planetary society headquarters the problem here is that our winner would have to handle his own transportation and hotel and since he's in lethbridge alberta canada <laughs> which is 2,300 kilometers or 1,430 miles from Pasadena. I suppose we should also send a rubber asteroid to first-time winner Barry Olson. And we'll send it with a copy of Greg Brennica's book, Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong, published by HarperCollins. Uh, congratulations, Barry. Another First time uh, winner up there in Alberta who said, yeah, M18, Messier 18, the Black Swan open cluster in the constellation Sagittarius. Shall we go on to uh, new stuff? Please. Back to the Apollo 11 Goodwill Messages disc. On that disc, left on the moon, according to NASA at the time, that's my caveat to try to have this be less confusing, according to NASA at the time, Messages from the leaders of how many countries other than the U.S. are included? How many countries, leaders other than the U.S. have messages on the Apollo 11 Goodwill Messages disc? According to NASA at the time, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And we're back to the usual deadline, giving you just a week, uh, if you hear this right away. Uh, that would make it Wednesday, June 8th at 8 a.m., Pacific time. And because we have so much interest in those uh, rubber asteroids, we'll, we'll go back. We'll give one more of those away uh, to the winner of, uh, of this one. All right, everybody, go out there, look up at the night sky, and oh, please think about Matt Kaplan on point. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's entertaining me right now. Thank you, and good night. I did play Drosselmeyer twice, once for each of my daughters. Uh, because they uh, they had the leading roles in their very small 
kids uh, ballet companies. And so uh, I had fun doing that. Uh, but yeah, you, you won't catch me on point. On point always, though, <laughs> is the chief astronomer, the chief scientist, I should say, as well as an astronomer for the Planetary Society. No pot to do there. It's uh, Bruce Betts, who joins us every week here for What's Up. <laughs> Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its harmonious members. Marco Verda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.